Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The Startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans, and thus America itself. I'm your host, Chris Stevenson. Join me for our 12-part podcast series, Religion and the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens, grappling with the complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released every Monday between now and the end of the year on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. When European Christians arrived in this vast territory we now call the Americas over 400 years ago, they found indigenous people here with their own meaningful and personal and sacred religious beliefs. The contact and conflict between Europeans and natives sparked a long-term series of religious encounters that intertwined with other settler colonial processes such as commerce, government, enslavement, warfare, and evangelization. The taking of Native Americans' land and their lives have been called one of America's two original sins. The legacies of colonialism swirl all about us still, including broken treaties, reservations, alcoholism, poverty, despair, misunderstandings, and questions of sovereignty alongside of survival, persistence, cultural and linguistic revitalization, and a return to traditional practices. Because religion was central to these processes in colonial America and continues to play an important role today, taking a look at the religious interactions between European colonists and Native Americans will help us all better understand these issues and help each other flourish in the American 21st century. Linford Fisher is a professor of history at Brown University. He received his doctorate from Harvard University in 2008. Professor Fisher's research and teaching relate primarily to the cultural and religious history of colonial America and the Atlantic world, including Native Americans, religion, material culture, and Indian and African slavery and servitude. He is the co-author of Decoding Roger Williams, the Lost Essay of Rhode Island's Founding Father. Additionally, he has authored over a dozen articles and book chapters and is currently finishing a history of Native American enslavement in the English colonies and the United States between Columbus and the American Civil War. He is the principal investigator of the Database of Indigenous Slavery in the Americas Project, which seeks to create a public centralized database of Native slavery throughout the Americas and across time. We are very happy to have Linford here to help us understand a particular part of America's religious history, religion and the shaping of Native cultures in early America by discussing his book, The Indian Great Awakening, published in 2012. Also, as with each episode in our podcast series, Religion and the American Experience, we hope listeners come away with a better comprehension of what religion, growing in the soil of the ideal of religious freedom as a governing principle, has done to America and what America has done to religion, and thus be better equipped as citizens to ensure that the American experiment in self-government endures. Said Abraham Lincoln, we cannot escape history. Thank you, Lynn, for being with us. Sure. Thanks for having me, Chris. First, Lynn, I want to make clear that your book covers a specific time period and a specific location. Yeah, you're right. In a sense, it does focus on New England. Uh, New York is in there, different places, uh, and there's gestures to other parts of the country. It also spans really from the 17th century through the early 19th century. Um, the core of the book is about a century uh, in terms of its purview. But yes, yeah, so this cannot stand in for all Native American history everywhere. Um, the Americas are a vast, vast area, and this history is rich and diverse. Um, but this little corner of the Americas, I think, represents a process that uh, can lead to productive conversations about other parts of, of uh, this area as well. And can you tell us about the little leather pouch found at a Pequot girl's gravesite who died sometime in the late 17th century, early 18th century, and what it means in the framing of your story? Yeah, so this is a story I open up with in the introduction to the book because it represents 
some of the themes that the book tackles overall. And it's a challenging thing to talk about and mention maybe because it has to do with the um, accidental unearthing of uh, human remains. And so I want to acknowledge up front that um, I uh, share the story uh, very respectfully, um, but knowing that it's it's actually uh, not my place and my role in a way um, to talk about human remains and native communities. But um, this particular instance happened because uh, there was a homeowner in Connecticut who was trying to make way for an underground gun range. And so had a bulldozer come in and plow this whole section of his yard up. And as they were bulldozing the land, they realized that the dirt was really dark in regular sort of intervals as they were plowing stuff away. And so they brought in the archaeologists from the state. Fortunately, the bulldozer um, op operator did the right thing, and they began to look, and they realized they had just bulldozed through a Pequot grave. Uh, the Pequots are this... Uh, you know, large in the 17th century, extraordinarily large uh, native group in southeastern uh, Connecticut, southern Connecticut. And uh, what they found um, in working with the present-day Mashantucket Pequots, uh, who authorize archaeologists to go in and to begin to um, to reinter them, but also in the process to do some um, sort of um, excuse me uh, analysis as well, and uh, what they found is in one of these graves, um, the, the remains of a young Pequot woman, probably in her teens, uh, and buried with her was this uh, bearskin pouch uh, that contained, um, or actually I'm not sure if it was bearskin, but it's this pouch, this medicine bundle, that within it was uh, the remains of a bear paw and also a fragment of a Bible page. And these two things you don't often see together in terms of New England, in terms of the archaeological record. And so it got people wondering, how can we interpret this? And it's also unusual, as you probably know, for Christians more generally to tear Bible pages out and use them separately from the Bible. And so here we have this you know, young Pequot woman uh, who dies uh, early. She's not you know, fully grown and not an adult woman. Um, and and uh, as we're trying to understand, not we, but people were trying to understand this, uh, began to realize that maybe there was something about the way in which um, these two religious influences and backgrounds came together in this medicine bundle. Uh, so the Bible representing some sort of Christian presence, maybe Christianization, but also maybe just using the Bible page as a, a like a talisman, like almost a, a way of of you know bringing on or, or producing power and the bear paw in the same way. So these two things are together. They're wielded by a native person, maybe added to her grave. Uh, you know, she might have not made that choice, but it meant something in terms of the coming together of two different religious kind of traditions and backgrounds. The bear paw also represents power as well. Um, and so the idea is, is that, that when we think about native religious lives, in this time period, it's not always so clear the meanings they assigned. And for too long, we've sort of listened to missionaries uh, and preachers and ministers, especially European ministers and preachers, in terms of trying to understand um, conversion and the meaning of a religious engagement. So I started with that as a way to sort of introduce some larger questions and themes. Right, thank you. Right, we'll get to some of those themes later. Uh, you also write, and this is, I think, foundational to our discussion, that the Native Americans believed they were given the land by the Great Spirit. How did European colonists see Native American land? Yeah, it's a really, as you say, foundational piece of the settler colonial process, um, which is to say that there's a, a vastly different uh, way of understanding land and its meaning between Europeans and natives. Uh, as you say, natives uh, believe that they had been, you know, created on this uh, land and had been given it to them. It had been given to them to to use in different kinds of ways, and they had specific ways that they use it, whether it's hunting and fishing or gardens or whatever else. But Europeans had a different way of understanding this than the English, in particular. 
in terms of claiming a plot of land and building a wall or a fence and putting a house on it that is there year round and using the land in different kinds of ways, cultivating specific kinds of gardens that, you know, are there year round and so forth. And, um, I think Europeans also generally saw the land as something that's exploitable in, in very specific kinds of ways. Uh, and so the English come over, they see this amazing uh, area in New England that's uh, just bursting with, um, you know, naturally uh, produced kinds of things that they're lacking in England, like trees. And I mean, uh, England, uh, the British Isles are basically, you know, devoid of trees by this point. They have um, just can't grow them fast enough. And they see in their eyes, um, you know, only a, f a few, whatever, ten, tens of thousands of natives. But in their eyes, they see a lot of land that's not used, that's unimproved is the language they use. And so within their frame of reference, kind of based on this biblical mandate out of the early uh, chapters of Genesis to kind of go out and and do stuff with the land, to work the land, they believe that they can just sort of come in and take land that's not actively being used. And sometimes they take land that is actively being used as well. So it's not only this idea of, of land uh, where there's no one on it. But they have these phrases and they talk about, yeah, uh, unimproved land or the emptiness of the land. Um, and in doing so, overlook the presence of Native Americans and also how Natives understand land, how Natives are using land, how Natives um, are actively cultivating uh, and are actively growing gardens and so forth. Thank you. That's very helpful. Um, can you tell us, Lynn, about the propagation of the gospel in New England Company or what's called the New England Company, which is featured prominently in your book, why it was formed, what it became, and some of its early work? So this company is formed by people, for the most part, in London, uh, who see um, this sort of colonization process as a great opportunity. So there's been talk from the beginning, uh, even with the sort of founding in Virginia in 1607, but also 1620 up in Plymouth. The idea is that the English uh, have said for a long time they want to evangelize natives. That's part of their justification for colonization. But when push comes to shove, they realize pretty quickly it's hard. It's really, really hard, in part because natives are uh, incredibly vibrant in terms of their culture and religion and their own sort of systems of understanding the world and the way that they organize their lives and so forth. And so uh, it's not evident to them at all that they should adopt Christianity. And so natives, you know, listen, they're very patient often, and then they sort of um, move on. And so it takes several decades for uh, something that is sort of a viable missionary movement to take root. And when it does begin to take root, it is around a few individuals who begin to learn native languages like John Eliot or the Mayhews uh, on Martha's Vineyard, John Eliot's in Massachusetts. And when these stories uh, and um, Eliot, John Eliot's very good at self-promotion, so he actually publishes a few tracts describing his successes among the natives in the 1640s, and they get published in London. And when they get published, people begin to have interest in supporting this sort of uh, active evangelization that's going on. And so they form this company in 1649. It actually, uh, with the restoration in 1660, the charter gets revoked, and so they have to reorganize it in the 1660s. And this persists up through... Uh, the 18th century um, as as one of the main ways that specific outreach and evangelization of natives gets funded within the New England context. Okay. You write that in the 1720s, native communities began inviting Anglo-American ministers and missionaries to reside on their lands. Can you explain why they did this and what it looked like? Okay, so you have to realize that 1720s, 1730s, uh, the settler colonial process has been in place for 100 years. It's been ongoing for 100 years. Uh, it's a century of English people living in this area, um, sometimes on land that they have 
bought in certain kinds of ways with deeds and paper trails, no matter how complicated those transactions are. Sometimes it's on land that was forcibly taken. Sometimes it's on conquered land, so-called, uh, through several wars that were fought. And uh, if you think about how natives looked at themselves and how they perceived what was happening in the 1720s, they've been through a century of, of that. They've been through two major wars. Uh, one, the first the Pequot War in the 1630s, that was essentially a genocidal war against the Pequot nation. And then King Philip's War in 1675, 1676, in which uh, a whole collection of natives actually tried to kick out the English from New England after decades of, you know, different kinds of broken promises and uh, infringement on native sovereignty and land and religious infringement as well through evangelization. Um, it wasn't successful, but the response by, by the colonists was to essentially try to crush all of that, um, what they termed rebellion and uprising. And uh, so that resistance movement was put down militarily. And uh, after King Philip's War in the 1670s, there's really no viable military pushback from natives in New England against colonization. So essentially, in 1720, these native peoples are living as defeated people, uh, militarily speaking, um, and subjugated people, maybe defeated is the wrong word, subjugated people within this colonial context. They've been pushed back to certain reserved lands uh, universally in Connecticut, Rhode Island, in Massachusetts. Uh, Plymouth gets incorporated into Massachusetts, so it's um, a single entity in the, in the 18th century. And uh, natives, I think, um, having been multiple generations into colonization, begin to look around and say, we have to find a way to form alliances and to get some of the tools um, in terms of language and writing uh, that will help us preserve our communities. And so that's why they invite teachers in primarily at first and not missionaries or evangelists or preachers because uh, literacy and, and the ability to write was critical to defending yourself in court, to providing a paper trail of the transactions that were taking place, to be able to read the documents that were put in front of you, asking you to sign if you're like selling land or something. So literacy was seen as a really important tool and natives are very savvy about this and invite in educators to accomplish that in the 1720s. You also wrote this in the same section of the book, I'm quoting here, although civilization had long been part of the New England company's evangelization strategy, it received greater emphasis, particularly with reference to Indian children. Can you elaborate? Yeah, so in the history of... Christian missions, I think there's always been this lurking kind of duality in terms of what is being offered or demanded. And this is definitely true in the 17th century and 18th century in terms of English missions, meaning that missionaries and ministers might have seen themselves as kind of offering the pure gospel, the pure Christian gospel, its ideas, its, you know, theology, its the Bible, it's the Bible verses, it's salvation, all this sort of metaphysical stuff, right? The reality is to be a really good Christian, to be a, an authentic Christian, required you to also adapt different kinds of cultural um, habits, not only of your mind, but of your body. And so even in the 17th century, uh, when John Elliott had these praying towns um, that were established in Connecticut and Massachusetts, and there's some uh, also on Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard. Often, natives, if they wanted to join a praying town, uh, had to adopt English dress. They had to, so they had to change their, their clothing. They had to cut their hair. Uh, Indian men especially had long hair, and they had to cut them off, cut that off, and um, use, use the English language. So um, the same kind of trend continues on into the 17th, uh, excuse me, the 18th century, in the 1720s, when these evangelists and missionaries and, and educators come uh, to Native communities. They are also looking to affect a physical change and a cultural change among natives as well. And the easiest way to be to plant the seeds of, of a cultural change and to quote unquote civilize native communities 
was to start with the children. So you get the children to speak English, you get the children to wear English clothes, you get the children to embrace what it means to be Christian. And that's going to sort of, over time, change the whole community. That's the idea of, of focusing on children. Okay. The Great Awakening took place in the 1730s and 1740s throughout the colonies and were quite different than the form of worship the Puritans and other traditional churches practiced. The new form included extemporaneous sermons, personal and experiential redemption, including being born again, shaking, fainting, crying, etc. Lynn, what effect did the Great Awakening have on Native Americans and why? I think the Great Awakening was a point of curiosity for Natives uh, initially. So if you can imagine these educators and missionaries coming to your land in like the 1720s and trying to talk to you about the Christian God and trying to read the Bible to you, and it's all very dull and boring. And, you know, there's no concepts necessarily in Native tradition and Native um, sort of theology that it exists, uh, such that it exists anyway, like religious worlds, for stuff like hell, for ideas, even like sin. Uh, these deeply Christian theological concepts that don't have analogs um, in, in Native society, in Native culture, in Native language even. And so John Eliot, uh, again, to return to him in the 17th century when he translated the entire Christian Bible, Old New Testaments, into the Wampanoag or Massachusetts language, as they called it back then too, um, he had to invent phrases uh, to try to communicate certain kinds of concepts to natives in this, this Bible translation. Um, so you have this sort of very staid kind of Puritan way of doing church. It's, it's super boring, I think, for contemporary Americans probably today, as well as for natives back then, two hour long services, hour and a half long sermon, right? Like monotone singing or uh, not monotone, but um, you, you kind of lined out the songs uh, in call and response. And what happens in the first great awakening, which is why it's also popular for other demographics, uh, you know, in the United, in, in, in colonial America is you have changes to all those kinds of traditionals, uh, rituals and traditions and how church is done. So instead of a spoken out, very dull, long sermon, you had people up front who are dancing around and giving very kind of uh, enthusiastic um, deliveries of sermons. Not everyone did this, but, but some people did this. Uh, you had uh, multi-part singing and new hymns being produced. You had people who, uh, as you described as well, who had what they called the jerks, like these these uh, ecstatic experiences where they'd fall down and be like slain in the spirit, as we would call it in the 20th century. Um, you had people who were said they were healed. You had people who you know, spoken strange languages, and you had people who had dreams and visions, and you had women who got up front and preached, and you had African Americans who were sort of felt free to speak about their own experiences, and you had natives who had the same thing happening to them too. So again, no matter how you sort of say, or, or like how you describe this, or how you um, understand what was really happening, whether it was the Holy Spirit, as they said, or whether there was some sort of other social psychology we could point to, the point is church changed and how church was conducted changed pretty dramatically. And so natives were part of the group of people who came to kind of see the spectacle. And in some cases, they were drawn in by this sort of more emotive and um, revelation-based and also personal experiential-based uh, way of doing church. And so um, we have natives who kind of are self-conscious about this, who kind of say, I, I came, I used to come here because it was really different and it was exciting. And, and then they end up, some of them leave because it ends up being less exciting and also for other reasons as well. So that initial draw, I think, can partly be explained just by the Great Awakening itself and how different it was. Um, there's other reasons I think they were attracted to the revivalist preachers because the revivalist preachers often, not always, but often were advocates for Native communities, at least initially. And I think Natives saw this as another 
possible way to leverage support for their own communities. Uh, so just like learning the English language, learning how to write is a tool for natives to um, protect their sovereignty and to you know protect their land. Uh, so to participation in the First Great Awakening, in some cases, was a way to um, potentially leverage some sort of favor with certain kinds of uh, white ministers and people they thought could advocate for them. We are talking with Linford Fisher about his book, The Indian Great Awakening, published in 2012. Dr. Fisher is a professor of history at Brown University and received his PhD from Harvard University in 2008. Lynn, in your chapter about affiliating, you discuss the term conversion and quote Juana Lancet, a Penacook tribal leader, who said that, quote, he was willing to leave my old canoe and embark in a new canoe, close quote. Would you tell us how Native Americans mentally reacted to the concept of Christian conversion? Yeah, you know, when I wrote this book, I think I was thinking about how how unique this sort of native way of um, embracing multiple things at once was. Um, so the one last one last quote is really interesting, but also Sansom Occam, who's a, a minister in the mid 18th century as well, a Mohegan minister told a story where he um, said that there was a guy who had a knife and when the blade broke, he just attached another handle and another knife to that existing handle. And when that blade broke, he did the same thing. And soon he had a knife that had like six handles, but only one blade. <laughs> and he said this was kind of an under, a way to understand how uh, natives might interact with different religious ideas, right? That, that you can bring on, uh, you know, mentally, spiritually, in terms of rituals, uh, adopt additional kinds of practices without giving up the ones that you had done before. Uh, James X. Tell and other historians have called this an incorporative approach to religion, that Native Americans incorporated multiple modes and multiple rituals and multiple ideas into their life worlds. I do think there's a different meaning for this uh, when you have a population that has been colonized and then evangelized. Uh, the decisions you make to adopt or not adopt are very, very different than for you or I. Humans are complex, and how we piece our lives together are also complex. Um, and that complexity, I think, had been flattened for, for natives in terms of conversion, um, and I think are flattened in terms of a lot of missionary contexts. And so trying to find a way to express the really, uh, I think, real and gritty reality, which is that natives kind of sampled and dabbled and went to church and then didn't go to church and prayed and then didn't pray and sang some songs and then didn't sing songs, you know, and then they went back and went to a powwow on their, you know, reserved land. And so how do we talk about that? Um, what does conversion look like for people? How did they describe it? So Wanda Lancet has this great imagery of changing canoes, which is pretty interesting, but I don't know that that's how everyone would have described it, right? Um, this idea of the knife and the stacking of the handles is a different way to think about it as well. So just trying to complicate this static and very uh, black and white um, notion of what conversion might be and what it does and what it looks like in the long term as well. I think the fact that they were colonized and then evangelized, that had to, that changes the paradigm quite a bit if you're colonized and yeah. the decisions that go into what you do with the colonizers religion that they're inviting you to look at. So thank you for that. Yeah. Some native Americans had seemingly sincere conversions to Christianity that looked and felt how European Christianity looked and felt. And some did not. I noticed in your book, can you talk to us about that a little bit and, and maybe give us a quick description of Samson Oakham? Sure. So one of the things that I'm not trying to do in the book is to uh, rule out the possibilities of 
what you might call like a more typical Christian conversion, right? Uh, so surely, even though we had some natives who kind of dabbled and, and there's clear evidence of this, and I have this in a section of the book, they dabble, they attend, and then they, they don't attend, right? They go off and do their own thing where they don't believe. Um, you also have examples of people who embrace this, who embrace uh, European Christianity and, and, and even indigenize it in certain kinds of ways and who embrace revivalism, who embrace Christian concepts that are foreign to natives in terms of sin and hell and all this other stuff. So Occam, Sansom Occam is one of these people who uh, comes to some sort of awareness of, of um, his own sort of, I guess, in, in Christian terminology, and as he says it himself, his own sinfulness, and he does profess uh, belief and faith in uh, the Christian God and in Jesus specifically in the First Great Awakening as a youth. And then he goes on to become um, a minister, unofficially at first, um, an educator, and then gets ordained by the Presbyterians and is an ordained Presbyterian, Mohegan, Christian, Indian minister. And all these sort of stacking on of his different identities in a way. He actually goes to uh, the United Kingdom and um, does a, a fundraising tour for Moore's Indian uh, uh, Charity School, which then becomes later on Dartmouth College. Whereas is the, the funds are used uh, to, to found Dartmouth College. And so he's a really interesting, complex individual um, who I think has not really been fully appreciated in terms of that complexity. He's just seen as someone who represents a good Christian convert, you know, in a way. Uh, he's a minister. He seems to fully embrace this. He's He dresses like an English person. He speaks really, uh, he speaks English very well. But, you know, you start to scratch the surface a little bit, and he's got all kinds of concerns as well. Um, and, and he really does indigenize um, Christianity in a certain kind of way. Um, and I think people like him also need to be part of the story. It's not just a story of rejection. It's not just a story of murkiness um, and sampling. But there's also stories of people who really embrace European Christianity. And Occam, I think, is, is one of them. Lynn, you write of a new Indian education effort in the 1750s and 1760s this way, and I'm quoting, in the face of prior failure through evangelism and education, English educators were not simply seeking to hand out the rudiments of literacy. They sought nothing less than a totalizing, civilizing transformation, which they felt was best done away from the interference of native families and communities. What led to this new approach and what were its ramifications? So if you imagine yourself in the 1750s as a white English minister or missionary, and you maybe you've been around for 30 years trying to do this, right? And so you might have been involved in the 1920s, or excuse me, the 1720s trying to educate native children. You have lived through the First Great Awakening. You saw natives join local white churches. But then within a couple of years, you saw the same natives who profess Christianity uh, leave those churches and maybe start their own churches on their reservations. And you're sitting here saying to yourself, we failed somehow. We didn't affect the kind of change among native communities we thought we were going to affect. And so that's what prompts this sort of uh, next wave of education and evangelization. And, you know, the, the point of all of this, I think, for many of the missionaries and educators was, as you said in that quote, to um, produce a more durable cultural change as well as a religious change. And so, and that's, that had been the case since the 17th century, that civilizing component had always been there. Um, but it gets more intense and radical in the 1750s because uh, there's this idea that the way to, to really uh, affect this change permanently is to extract children out of their home context, um, which had not been done uh, in large numbers previously. 
and to basically re-educate them. I mean, it's a re-education camp, essentially. You're uh, really trying to get them to speak English, all the things I mentioned before. You're getting them to wear English clothes. You're getting them to you know, convert to Christianity, to learn about uh, Christianity. And you're essentially trying to get them to then go back to their home communities as Christian missionaries to spread that same sort of sensibility about culture and about language and about religion in their own way to their own people. So that's the origins of Morazinian Charity School, um, that uh, it brings native children as far away as, uh, far away as uh, New Jersey and New York, but also Rhode Island, Connecticut, to uh, Lebanon, Connecticut, and, and, and really tries to, to educate them in a specifically English Christian model. Thank you. Lynn, you wrote about a 1778 Indian tribe statement to the Connecticut Assembly that they, the Native Americans, quote, do not want Negroes or mulattoes to inhabit their lands, close quote, and that they wish to keep them out of their tribe. How did Native Americans view African Americans? There's a long history of Natives and Africans maybe in some ways not getting along, in other ways uh, getting along. But if you think about them um, in the context of the 17th and early 18th century, they really don't often have a lot in common, uh, at least at the beginning. Um, the one thing they shared was the um, experience of displacements and colonization or, or colonialism more generally. And sometimes they shared the experience of slavery and enslavement because um, Native Americans were enslaved and sometimes right alongside of Africans as well. Um, but in other ways, there was a big difference. Uh, natives who weren't enslaved and who had their own land and their own sovereignty and their own nation still intact um, saw themselves pridefully in a way vis-a-vis -vis enslaved Africans that were brought across the Atlantic to North America. And so there was a little bit of, of kind of uh, at least early on an attempt to distinguish themselves from Africans. Um, and so that statement that you read, uh, there's a little bit of that in it. I think there's a longer history of that sort of differentiation that they're trying to make. But there's also something more specific in that statement, uh, this sort of um, petition to not allow Africans and African-Americans onto their land is in part because of, of the intermarriage that had been taking place between Africans and Indians, uh, in part because of the shared experiences of slavery, in part because sometimes they end up working on maybe for wages as well, or, or living together, or um, occupying the lower social strata in colonial society, in other ways, coming into contact and, and marrying and, and intermarrying. And uh, the way in which the colonial society viewed um, the children of these marriages or the children of these, um, these couples and so forth uh, was that they didn't view mixed race people as being legitimately native. And so the fear for natives in New England is that as people of mixed race are increasingly on their, their reservations, that the white society would see them as less and less legitimate, and eventually it would remove their claims for land because they're no, no longer seen as actually uh, authentic natives, quote-unquote. So that's a really powerful fear and idea that begins to take root. And so this um, petition is is so sad in some ways because you know that if they're barring natives, uh, excuse me, uh, mixed race and African-Americans from their lands, in some cases, they're barring their own flesh and blood by their own relatives. Um, but the impulse to preserve their land was so strong that at, at times that was what uh, they thought needed to be done. Um, there was other cases, though, of outsider um, Africans, African-Americans coming onto their land and just squatting and claiming land too. And that also uh, was a problem. So there's multiple reasons, I think, why that petition comes into play. But there is something, if you can understand the core of it as a concern for land, 
and protecting land and the way in which race is being coded and read in certain ways by the wider white society. I think that helps understand uh, what otherwise might be a, a somewhat confusing position. In the period after the Revolutionary War, the so-called national period in American history, how are the interactions between Native Americans and Americans different and how are they the same? Yes, that's a huge uh, topic and, and question. It's a really good one because it, it, a lot changes very, very quickly. And I would even go back to think about 1750 compared to 1780, for example. So you have uh, the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War internationally. That's uh, the result of that in 1763 is the French are kicked out of North America. And even for natives in New, in in New England, um, the idea that the French are this counterbalance to the English is really powerful and really important. And so that's one of the changes that takes place. And then in the American Revolution, the British and the, and the British crown are essentially removed from the equation within what becomes the United States. And that's important because there was always this tension between what the colonies and colonial rulers and legislators said and did regarding natives and then what the crown back in England might say or do. And so natives were constantly petitioning uh, the crown, the English crown, the English king or queen, asking for redress, asking for help, asking for aid, asking to, um, you know, return their rights in the face of colonial governments. And with the American Revolution, uh, the English crown's out of the picture. There's no more possibility of having this, like, other party to counterbalance the American colonists. And in its place um, is not George Washington. That's not who is sort of structurally put at the sort of center of Indian diplomacy, although I think he plays that role in some ways. But instead, it's Congress. So the U.S. Congress is now the arbiter of all things Indian. And the U.S. Congress is not a favorable entity. They uh, look very hungrily, just like, you know, Americans do at lands out to the west of what had been the proclamation line of 1763, this imaginary line that run up, ran up through the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, and previously, um, speculation and land purchasing and expansion was, was prohibited by the British government. After the American Revolution, uh, past that line that is, after the American Revolution, um, essentially that line goes away. There's a lot of very fast westward expansion. And natives really have nowhere to turn in terms of advocacy. And so it, it's, a, it's a pretty massively different um, political environment, cultural environments, um, and even religiously, most of the Anglican and uh, English missionary societies pull out as well. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a, whole new, a whole new world, literally, um, for a lot of natives. So the, the New England company, as you say, pulled out, and that was a, a large player in the religious interactions between European colonists and the Native Americans. It was gone. What, what took its place? Specifically or just generally, what, what were the changes in the religious interactions? Yeah. There is a uh, missionary society that is formed in the 1780s, um, again in New England, and it's to replace the New England Company, basically, and, and it has a very long name, which I will certainly not get right. It's the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in New England and parts adjacent, I think it is. Uh, something to that effect. Um, anyway, the point is that there is another mission, missionary society that, that emerges in this time period. Um, and then in 1810, a more important missionary society is formed, again, in New England, but that has um, a broader reach. So if the this society I just mentioned from the 1780s that's formed after the American Revolution is founded really to, to evangelize natives in New England, um, the what's called the ABCFM, the American um, Board of Commissioners for Foreign Parts, ABCFM, foreign, foreign Mission, excuse me, uh, they um, have a global vision and natives are part of that. So they're sending missionaries to India, they're sending missionaries to Hawaii, they're sending missionaries everywhere, as well as 
to the Cherokees, for example, right? So uh, there are missionary movements and bodies and entities that end up um, playing some of those same roles, uh, but again, within this sort of new national context um, that feels different in some ways. Uh, Lynn, towards the end of your book, and this is the last question, you write that distinct echoes of these various threads of Christianization, affiliation, and the appropriation of Christian forms in surprising and nominal ways can be found in the form of church buildings. Can you describe one of these church buildings you have in the book and emphasize the visible religious and cultural legacies of the time period covered in your book? Yeah, I think the most striking one for me is the Mohegan Church on Mohegan lands in Connecticut today. Uh, these churches play really important roles, um, and I'll get to the religious um, symbolism in a second, but uh, these churches are often what anchors Native communities through the really dark periods of the late 19th century and early 20th century. And by that, I mean that um, starting even in the 1820s and 1830s, there's this idea that Natives are disappearing, that they're not authentically Native unless they're 100% Native in terms of their blood and heritage. And uh, the removal ideology even comes in New England. People haven't written about this very much, but uh, there's some federal agents that come to different New England Native nations and they suggest to them like, hey, if you would just move you know, out west, we could give you more land and you could be happier and everything else. You want to play with local people here. And uh, to a tribe, they turn that offer down and there's no forced removal here like there is elsewhere. But through all of these different kinds of, of trials, um, the Narragansetts were detribalized in the 1880s, for example. They were bought out person by person of their Narragansett identity for about $13. I mean, it's kind of this amazing story and super sad story. Uh, so there's this ideology of disappearance, there's this ideology of removal, there's this ideology of detribalization. There's the, the this notion that, again, authentic natives can't be of, of mixed uh, multiple races. And so as their land base gets chipped away, as uh, people are, are moving and dispersing for various reasons, often the only piece of land that has a paper trail back to the colonial period is the land on which these churches sit. And th these churches become vitally important in the late 20th century and uh, in the 70s and 80s when these same Native nations are, are trying to apply for federal recognition. And sometimes the only paper trail in terms of consistent land use they can point to are these churches. And so the Mohegan Church is one of those examples. Um, the Mohegans had been asked by federal agents if they wanted to move out west of the Mississippi. They're like, no, thank you. And quickly build a church, like, you know, in a way to stave off removal, uh, because they believed that they would sort of visibly show that they were Christian in some ways um, and, and have this sort of visible sign of, of uh, being Americanized and Christianized, that it would help them to retain their sovereignty. So the church was built. It, it, uh, it's not super well attended in any meaningful way. Um, the minister for a long time is white, but it's a visible, important pres presence on Mohegan lands. And today when you go there, uh, there's a way in which it still operates in this sort of murky way, uh, culturally speaking. Um, so you go in, and uh, at the very front of the church is this, you know, impressive wooden cross on the wall, and above it, hanging above it, is an eagle feather. And in you know native life worlds and the way they understand uh, assign meaning and, and value in terms of spiritual power, uh, eagles are and eagle feathers are immensely important. They have been historically and traditionally way before the American bald eagle became uh, protected by the federal government. Um, and so this eagle feather represents native and indigenous spiritual power. And it's hanging above the cross, right? It's on the wall with the cross, but it's above the cross. And so somehow that's just symbolized for me, again, this complexity of the way in which natives historically, but also up to the present, have thought about the relationships between their own lives and spiritual 
uh, investments and involvements, um, the way it's tied to notions of sovereignty and protecting land and protecting even language and their own physical bodies, um, and the way in which um, these things have coexisted. And it's not like there's only an eagle feather. It's not that there's only a cross, but but together. And so the book cover actually tries to put those things side by side um, to illustrate, in a way, the complexity of these kinds of relationships over time that we can still see today and still hear, hear people narrating today as well. I mean, one of the things that um, was the most meaningful to me is in the conclusion for the book is getting out and actually talking with people, um, having conversations with present day tribal members who have uh, you know, become friends and people that I turn to for questions about uh, Native history and, and this current book project I'm working on. And the idea I think I hope my readers get when they finish the book is that this is not just a story about the past, but actually Native communities are, are here. They are alive and well, and despite centuries of uh, settler colonialism, are thriving and are working on reclaiming their language. They're working on reclaiming their traditional uh, ways of, of living and being, and um, they're diverse and, and they're just really vibrant and wonderful. And so um, to find a way to communicate that as well to the reader um, and also to listeners of this podcast, I think is actually maybe one of the most important takeaways is that this history, as well as this current colonizing process, I would add, is not done. Um, my native friends will remind me that the colonial period for them doesn't end with the American Revolution. It's still ongoing. And that's a really important perspective, I think, for uh, white Americans to have. Thank you, Lynn. We have been talking with Linford Fisher about his book, The Indian Great Awakening, published in 2012. He is a professor of history at Brown University and received his PhD from Harvard University in 2008. Thank you so much, Lynn, for taking time to participate and for all your efforts in studying the religious interactions between the Native Americans and the European settlers, which undergird America's relationship and interactions with Native Americans today, as you so well said. No problem, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's really a delight to have this conversation. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes are released each Monday starting October 19th, 2020 through the end of the year on Podbean under Story of American Religion, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify.